welcome to the latest episode of Northern Spin Extra. I'm Michael Taylor. As always, I'm joined by Chris Maguire. In a second, we're going to be hearing from a very special guest. But before that, a few thank yous. Yes, hello, Michael. Welcome again. I'm very excited by our guest today, but we couldn't do this podcast uh, without our friends at What Media who produce it and also our sponsors at Oscar Technology, without whom we simply couldn't produce our podcast. So thank you to them. Uh, very excited by our special guest today. She's a woman who, like me, is a southerner. She's flying the flag here in the north. Um, she's embedded herself in the tech and business community in Manchester. And I think you need to introduce her, Michael. I do, indeed. Vimla Apadu describes herself as a design thinker, international speaker, and an advocate for changing the way businesses think using culture, design, and technology to align profit and purpose. She's also on the board of the Greater Manchester Local Enterprise Partnership, the LEP, which oversees the strategy of the city region. Great to have you with us, Vim. Thanks. Am I allowed to call you Vim? Yeah, of course. Okay. Good. Uh, I love the way that you express yourself on developing mission-driven business. Could you d- uh, explain a little bit more about what a mission-driven business is and how that, how that manifests itself? Yeah, so I often describe a mission-driven business as a for-profit and purpose organisation. So it's a business whose main focus and core belief is to do good in the world, however they define that. Um, And it's separate from kind of corporate social responsibility where it's an add-on or a nice-to-have. It's the core of why that business exists. Um, And fundamentally, it's separate from a charity. It's trying to do it for profit as well. So changing the way we think about businesses so that you you can do it all. Yeah, so Chris and I took part in something called the People's Powerhouse event last week. And I I wish more businesses were involved in that, just as I, I, you know, I like businesses that embrace the whole um, B Corp structure and and all the things that they have to achieve to do within the business. Is that an example of of B Corp? Is B Corp an example of the sort of work that you do to help businesses along that journey? Yeah, I think B Corp as an accreditation is is a kind of kite mark of businesses and organisations that do well, so or do good in the world. So as a consumer looking out and seeing right, I'm going to only support B Corp organisations is definitely one way of supporting those businesses. Um, But yeah, it's that kind of thing. B Corp's one example of how you can do it. And what's traditionally, in your experience, stopping businesses from embracing that kind of positive culture that you'd encourage them to go on that journey? What what are the barriers to doing that? Is is it cost maybe? Um, I don't think it's cost. I think there's a mindset that Um, for a business to succeed and be successful, you can't do good. So I think with capitalism, it it sits at this kind of tension point of actually, if you want to make millions and have a high profit, you have to sacrifice the good stuff and doing good in the world. And that's because often for good businesses are seen as charities or nice to have or low revenue points or you can't pay yourself. When the opposite is true is you can do all of those things and still do a good business. Yeah, fantastic. Chris, you, you, you were attending a roundtable last week where you were discussing effectively the war for talent and yeah. how so many um, businesses now, they want to attract the best people and the best people actually embody a lot of the values that, that Vim's describing. Yeah, um, as I say, a lot of companies say that money isn't the driving force now for a lot of young people. It's you know, people want to make a difference. They want to feel like they're part of the journey. And if they don't feel that they've got some 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 uh, you know skin in the game, then they won't do it. But but interestingly, they'll look at a company and if they do something which isn't sustainable, if they do something where their own objectives aren't aligned to their own you know motivations, they don't want to work for that company as well. And you're starting to see that a lot with some of the big tech firms as well. You know, a lot of people are saying, "I don't want to work for you because of this, that, and the other." And actually. 
you know, if you're making too much money, if you're if you're seen to be making too much money, um, I'm not necessarily so sure that's a good thing as well. Um, I mean, we're seeing the, the the crash of the cryptocurrency as well. You know, that 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 took place last week, and that's there's that big fallout. But 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 you know, he was talking about his philanthropic objectives. I can't remember the name of the guy now. The 30 year old uh, trillionaire he described himself. Come crashing down around his ears. And and I think you're right. I think you're right. I think companies can and must be seen to be doing you know tech for good. Must be. Yeah. So. Vim, sorry, we're stealing your show. Well, I was going to say, but I, I don't think this is new. What I think is new is it's younger generations pushing for it. I think what you used to see is people would have their career, then get to retirement age and be like, right now I'm going to step into this for good space. I'm going to be philanthropic. I'm going to get into politics. I'm going to join boards. I'm going to be trustees. Whereas actually now people are starting at a younger point saying, I want that for my whole career rather than by the time I've lived. Um, and that's the interesting point. And you're always going to have people who are motivated by money or want to get into high competitive industries and things like that. It's just there's this new emerging market of four good businesses. So how do you think Manchester's doing, or I suppose the North generally, with its tech community, which you're quite embedded in, you're quite close to, um, and, and the kind of events and conferences that you've, you've spoken at, what sort of reception do we get about this tech for good agenda that you're so, so bought into? Yeah, so I ran a tech for good accelerator in Manchester years ago now. <laughs> I can't remember how many years ago. There's pre-COVID, which yeah, sort of it's just thrown blurs out it, all it? of yeah. the, yeah, it's a time warp. Um, and we've moved on leaps and bounds since then. So when I was running that accelerator, the appetite for tech for good was really low. We found it really difficult to find uh, businesses that fit, that fit that kind of market niche. And the conversation around investment was very different then as well, because to be seen as tech for good posed a threat to that kind of high, high investment unicorn type uh, businesses. But when you look at the market now and you look at businesses that are starting, tech for good is a predominant factor. And I think in Manchester in particular, with the culture that we have of giving back and um, the city's kind of support for those kind of organisations. There's a lot more going on now in that space. Brilliant. So, Chris, um, you, you've um, you've been involved in the tech community for a long time. Mm. Do you think Manchester stands up on those measures um, uh, in the way that Vim describes as a, as, as, as a place where good business is transacted? I, I think good, there are examples. I think there are examples of good employers. And there are examples of bad employers. There are examples of good journalists and bad journalists. I think in terms of Manchester, I think there's a real genuine, and I'm, I say I'm from the South, you're from the South as well. You're from, you're from Surrey originally, and I'm from Kent. Um, even though, I don't know, do you feel like a fully adopted Northerner now? I can never see myself living back in the South again. I don't know if you can. No, no. Um, <clears throat> love London, but love to visit it, not to <laughs> live in it. Um, I, yeah, Manchester's home. It is, and, and I, use the, um, I use the underground analogy that I will strike up a conversation with somebody on a London underground and people are shocked. They are shocked. And yet in the north, you know, people will engage in a conversation with you as well. In answer to your question, Michael, I think, I think there are good examples at both ends, but I think generally there's this general feeling and you're seeing the B Corp movement, you know, is starting to grow in the north. You're seeing the uh, employee ownership trust model in which people like Sandy Lindsay at Tangerine have really pioneered as well. And, um, you know, uh, Donald Moore in Stockport has done a ph phenomenal yeah, job. Yeah, one and all's are great, but do you know that business, one and all? Yeah, yeah incredible uh, example, really. It used to be Rawlinson Knitwear, and it's transformed yeah. into 
well, it's changed its name to One and All, but yeah. which I think reflects the journey that Donald's taking the business on for it to be employee-owned, to really try and achieve B Corp status. And, you know, he got through, as he says, by the skin of his teeth because the process is not easy, is it? It's not a tick box exercise. Yeah. You properly get scrutinised. And you're also seeing a lot more companies, a lot of tech companies as well. I don't know if you agree with me, Vim, um, in terms of they're giving equity away to employers as well because the recruitment challenges for tech companies, it's so competitive They've got to offer more. I mean, are you seeing that? Yeah, yeah. And it's something that we actively, when I was running the accelerator, would encourage people to do as well, particularly when you're a new business and you might not have the um, funding to meet salary expectations. Giving equity away in an organisation is a way of keeping people there and having them behind that mission as well. Great company called Surmise just raised some investment. And what they do is they look at a legal tech. So if you've got a big weighty 500 word document and the really important stuff is sandwiched in there somewhere, they basically use their technology to actually identify the key things you should be looking for, you know, the terms, et cetera, et cetera. Get a lot of traction, Everton use them, NCC group use them. And one of the things that they've done is they've offered staff a policy of work anywhere you want. So if it's outside of a commutable distance, which in my case would be Chorley, um, but you can work anywhere in the world. So they had their marketing director spend four weeks in Italy. They worked for three weeks and they spent a week on holiday there. But there, it's things like that. And I don't know if you've noticed that. They're having to be more creative in what they offer. And it's not just about money, is it? No, no. It's the work-life balance. If you, The way I look at it is I've got 24 hours in a day that's it. It's not kind of eight hours at work, eight hours at home, eight hours sleeping. It's 24 hours to live my life. And why would I spend eight of those hours doing a job that I hate in an office that's not right for me? Three hours of that on a commute that I can't, like, don't, doesn't fulfill me. I'd much rather, much rather do eight hours just living my life in a job that I enjoy with people that have the same ethos as me and doing good in the world. Can I ask you a controversial question? Okay. Are there still dinosaurs out there businesses that don't want to change and, and still think, hey, you're lucky to have a job. You know, that's, that's, that's the sort of first question. And is there a danger that we go too far and make it you know, too much stacked in favour of the employee? Um, so there are organisations out there that don't want that change, but the pandemic has shown us that when push comes to shove, that change can, can come through when we have to. So I kind of, and a lot of the talks I give use that as an example of organisations that thought they couldn't go on that journey were forced to overnight and they're now trying to push back to what they were. But that's where the employee lifestyle comes back in of like, but we had all of this, why are you taking it away from us? Um, I don't think there's a risk of it becoming too employee focused because I think what we should be encouraging is a culture of trust and autonomy that enables people to do their job in a way that works for them. Um, but that means a really big shift in leadership style and management style to understand how to bring that out of people. Um, and the counter of that is when things go wrong, being able to hold people accountable to why that they've gone wrong and making decisions based off of that. Um, so like Culture Shift, the organisation that I'm with at the moment, we do a similar thing of we can work anywhere within a certain time difference and it means that people get that lifestyle holiday exp experience. Um, you can work anywhere. You kind of we have core hours, and you can do whatever you need to outside of those. And those kind of things really enable you to live your best life and work mm. in the way that works for you. I think what's interesting here is that obviously we set this podcast up to be a ostensibly a politics podcast, and a lot of what we're talking about here now, Vim, could quite easily segue into if you know a feature that Chris might write in Business Cloud or. Uh, or Tech Blast, the, the platforms that he's got, or I could write it up for any of the outlets I occasionally do journalism for. 
but actually it's the politicization of every area of life and that's that's got to be a good thing that's an awakening that's the way i see it yeah i think there's a fear that when things become politicized it becomes archaic and difficult and hard to change but if we can start seeing the politics as a way of influencing policy and protection of like employees and new rights and new ways of working, then I think it's really positive. Yeah, fantastic. So I'm I'm self I'm really self conscious about this this issue. But we did the People's Powerhouse event last week, and um, we had lots of different guests dipping in and out of our conversation in in a, in a live setting. And I was really self conscious of the fact that the only person that I wanted to discuss racial justice with was uh, was the woman in the hijab with a darker skin tone than me. And I'm thinking, what can we do as a couple of old white fellas to really develop our own allyship that we genuinely have, that we want to we want to do the right thing and, and, and make the right choices and make the right decisions in whatever organisations we might, we might work in now, you know, and indeed in putting together a podcast like this. Yeah, allyships are really, like, it's a good thing. Um, I think it's difficult to get right, but everyone's on a journey to understanding what, what it looks like, and that's the important bit to focus on, is it's not about getting it right first time, it's about understanding how to support people. I think, for me, it often comes down to positions of power. So I come into a room like this. I'm, I'm the only person under 30, or 30, uh, only, um, yeah, like, the producers are probably in that age bracket. Um, the only person of colour, only yeah. female, um, and sitting alongside two podcast hosts who have a lot more experience in the sector, industry, and network. And that's intimidating. And I, that's my walk of life for every room that I go into. It's intimidating and it's um, hard. And I think when it comes to that power dynamic, it's understanding that whatever power it is you hold giving that to other people so that they can have a platform and a voice and, a, and an opinion to share. Okay. Do you, have, we, have, we, have we tried to give you that voice? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, are we, are we doing okay? Yeah, yeah No, exactly. No, I wanted to. I've always been impressed by, um, by the, the way that you express yourself. So um, you. we wanted to sh share that with you on our podcast today. Thanks. But it's something we are genuinely passionate about. It can't be tokenism. I mean, no. just for the sake of you know, the listeners. I mean, there's five people in the room, isn't there? You've got the two people from What Media and myself and you and, and Vim as well. Um, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, if I may. I looked at your social media posts over the weekend as well. And um, and it, fascinating, childcare, big, big issue now. Big issue, affordable childcare especially. You look at the situation in the UK. You took part in a march recently. Your daughter is, is 14 months old. You took her on the, uh, the march. Um, and it's, I think we've got the most, second most expensive childcare in Europe, I think. In the world. In the world. What would be affordable childcare? And how big an issue and how big an obstacle is it, do you think, for, for working parents? I think it's the biggest issue for working parents. Um, it's, so there are models that exist of countries that have affordable childcare. You look at Scandinavia, where it's um, subsidised by the government, and it means that parents are able to work and have children in an affordable way. Um, I think affordable childcare means not having to decide whether you have a career or you have children. And at the moment, that's the decision that parents are having to make is who's, who's gonna sacrifice their career or their work in order to enable us to have children and ensure that they have quality um, childcare provision. 
And it's absolutely fine whatever you choose and however you choose that. But I think for people who do want to have children and have a career, you shouldn't be forced to have to make that decision. But Michael, I mean, I'll ask you, you're, you're a father of five. You know, I've got two grown-up girls. What was it like for you in terms of, you know, when you became a dad? Did you have to make those sort of choices? Has this situation changed? Has it got worse? Has it got more acute? Or is it a question that people are talking about it more now than they were you know, with the best will in the world when we were new parents? Yeah, I think people are talking about it more. I think um, I think it's a difficult, it was, it's been a difficult wrestling for a lot of employers to have to, to live with. When I first um, became a parent, I think there was an expectation that mum stays at home to look after the kids and all of that sorts of things. And that women in particular had to make those, um, the, the, the choices that Vim so well and ably described. Um, no, it was, it was a real juggle, yeah, constantly. But again, and we were dependent on the grace and goodwill of lots of other people around in, in our surrounding network. But that's the thing. If you don't have a support network yeah. and you don't have free childcare available for, to offset the costs of nurseries, childminders, yeah. nannies, I don't actually know what you're supposed to do because the, the fees are extortionate. And we, I'm in a partnership where we've got two good incomes and it's still a decision we have to make of yeah. how many days. And we've both gone part-time to enable us to be able to afford that. And that's yeah. that's being at the very lucky end of that decision-making. Yeah, it, it is. It, it is. And, and uh, phenomenal, phenomenal that you're speaking out about this. The knock-on effect is you get less women as a result, yeah. and particularly for women in um, heterosexual relationships, it means you get less women in the boardroom, less women in the offices, less women on exec board. Um, and CEO levels and then that extrapolates into politics where you get less women yeah. making these decisions that then affect women so it's a really perpetual cycle of if we don't address this issue now we're not going to be able to address the gender imbalance um, that it, like proliferates society yeah. and then on top of that you've got ageism and racism and all of the other things that play into it. Yeah. So, Vim, tell me, you, you've stepped into the breach as uh, as a board member of the Manchester LEP, which is fantastic. Um, I'm intrigued as to how you're finding that. And I'm intrigued for you to share with us on this podcast the minutes of the last meeting in great detail so we can <laughs> yeah. find out what's going on as we're a couple of nosy journalists. But um, but that step into sort of public life, if you will, has, has that encouraged you to do more, to potentially think about politics? Because Someone like you, you know, you've um, you've got a lot to say. Yeah. Uh, so have you thought about it? Would you I, be Would you be an MP? Yes. You would. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I've always, I've always wanted to get into politics, and it's probably the opposite way around. I've always wanted to get into politics, and have seen the LEP is a great way of experiencing my first exposure to what public life might look like. Um, it's been a really interesting journey. So I joined the LEP during the pandemic and then a couple of months after getting appointed, found out I was pregnant. So it's, it was kind of like, all oh, right, okay, so this is all happening at once. Um, and I think as a young person on a LEP, uh, there aren't many people under 30 that serve or that kind of have that role. It's really interesting to see the dynamics at play and to understand those power dynamics and connections and networks that already exist. And it is something you really have to learn. And I think the same is true of politics. There's so much, um, like you said, skin in the game that you just have to have. And that's really difficult to learn on the job without having the kind of um, know-how. And again, that plays into all of the systems that are already in play where politics in itself is a, is a um, privately educated, dominated sector. 
and you get taught a lot of that when you when you're in those those fields and you have parents who have the networks and you're taught from a young age to do all of that stuff so I think there's a lot at play in knowing for me and my vulnerability knowing I'm already 10 steps behind trying to catch up and get into that yeah have you ever seen a Labour Party candidate contract by the way about what's expected and how many contacts a week right well again that absolutely adds fuel to to your argument about the demands that it places on and I would say particularly on women I know this from having worked in politics recently for the Labour group on Stockport Council and and I'm, I'm not talking tales out of school when I say that it has been the subject of ferocious debate about how unfair some of those contracts seem particularly to people with caring responsibilities. Um, you posted the following tweet in 2020 which I'll read out if I may. Um, who else remembers a day uh, they were told they'd have to work twice as hard as anyone else to get what they want in life because of the colour of their skin? And I saw that quote, and I thought, you know, it, it's it's shocking, you know. Yeah, but it, it's, Vim, it's Vim's truth, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, how bad a problem? I mean, we were talking about the World Cup earlier. Um, you might have, uh, you know, Michael's boycott of the World Cup, which extends not tweeting about it, um, you know. But we saw the response from some people to the Euros when um, Marcus Rashford, Sacco, um, missed penalties as well. Is racism and the way it's been dealt with getting better or is it getting worse in your experience? I don't think the way racism is dealt with has changed. I just think the people who experience racism are more confident in calling it out than they have done in previous generations. And I say that knowing my parents went through a really tough time when they came to this country. But the narrative then was just be quiet, keep your head down and don't make a fuss. Just, you know, brush it off. It's we we have to survive here and so when I do call it out my mum and dad worry that I'll lose my job that bad things will happen to me I think what we've seen is an empowered generation of second second generation immigrants who now are like no I'm not gonna let someone walking down the street call me the p-word I'm not gonna take it that I get treated differently and it's actually we're seeing more people speaking out about it, but I don't think the way we're dealing with it has changed. I want to ask a question about um, social media. Big bill this week, going through Parliament, could take 10 weeks, I think, and uh, it's going to tackle the whole aspects of social media. Um, you know, I've got two, two daughters, and uh, I see the peer pressure they're under because of social media. Um, would you encourage your daughter to go on social media? I wouldn't encourage her to, um, but I would give... I would hope to give her the skills to make an informed choice about whether she chooses to go on it. Social media is changing all the time as well, as you say, and I think social, the social media of the future is going to be very different to what it is now. What I think is lacking is um, our, the way we create policies is too slow for the way technology is advancing. Mm. So the policies are playing catch-up to how... And it's almost like, this is how it's being used, quick. How do we legislate? How do we control? How do we monitor? 
Whereas I think, and, and it's being dictated by technology firms rather than government saying, if we were going to live in this world where technology plays this role, this is how it needs to work. And I think that needs to change. It's, it's almost like the policy and the law is going to be obsolete by the time it comes out because technology is moving so fast at breakneck speed. You're going to be talking about a technology platform that probably doesn't exist. Oh, incidentally, uh, I mentioned it earlier, um, but I didn't mention his name. Uh, that, that's a crypto platform, FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried as well. Um, we just touched on the whole issue of race. What did you think last week when you saw the story um, about Buckingham Palace and those comments as well? You know, um, they, they caused, a lot of, caused a lot of headlines. What do you think about that when, when um, you know, a visitor to Buckingham Palace was asked where she came from? What was your thoughts on that? I think anyone who looks different has experienced that. <laughs> I think that's, that's the most common question I get asked is, where are you from? No, where are you really from? No, where are you really from? Yeah. Um, and when you, I'm Mauritian, so it's, uh, I'm of Indian heritage from a country that's in Africa, but live in, grew up in London and now live in Manchester. It gets very complicated very quickly to describe where I'm from. Um, but like I say, that isn't, uh, that's not a unique problem. That happens all the time. But the reason it got airtime is because she posted about it on social media. I know hundreds of people who have had that same experience in politics, in Buckingham Palace, in at that level who just haven't spoken about it because what's the point? It's not gonna change anything and nothing happens. People get in uproar about it and are angry, but it doesn't actually change the mindset. And I think it's a real problem we have in the UK because that kind of microaggression and racism is so embedded in our systems and culture that it's really difficult to tackle because it is the norm. Mm. And it's when we try and have an open conversation about it and say, you're not racist, it's how things are, but here's what you can do to change. That's met with defense, like a defense mechanism because the race word has been said. So the onus is then on people of color to to navigate that and tread really carefully around how do I bring this conversation up without offending people but still making a difference and making a change? Mm, the, the three ladies we spoke to, well, um, at uh, last week's The People's Powerhouse, the three hijabis, they, they were talking about the fact that they wanted to tackle racism in sport and they've got over a million people have, have backed them now. But what they were saying is that if you are guilty of racism at sport, you should be banned for life, not a fixed term, you know, and which, which, I, which I agree with. 100%. I think it's a very difficult subject in terms of people feel awkward to talk about it. Do you think that's, do you think people feel awkward to talk about it? Uh, yes, I think um, people, are, people are scared of saying the wrong thing. And that's why at the very beginning I was saying everyone's on a journey. And I think we live in this society now where we're quick to say you're wrong <laughs> yeah. rather than I understand where you're coming from, but here's how I see it. And I understand that this is a part of your learning, so let's have a conversation about it. It's very like, no, you're wrong, I'm right, instead. And I think that's part of the problem. And does that come back to the whole issue of social media, where social media plays to you're right, you're wrong. There's nowhere in the middle. And you mentioned, you said people are scared to talk about it. I think people are scared to talk about it because they think of it as career-ending. Mm -hmm. If they say something wrong and then they get called out on social media, which is instant and it's shareable, mm -hmm as well. And I think what's lost is you can't actually have a proper conversation, can you? I mean, 
and I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with Michael, which, which listeners to the show will know is a rare occurrence, but we both want to be a force of good, don't we? Yes. We don't do this podcast for money, far from it. We certainly what media give their time and effort to us, not for money, but generally, because we believe that we want to make the North a better place. You know, I've got two daughters. I, I want them to want, like your daughter, I want them to feel they can do anything they want. I want them to feel that there isn't an obstacle to them achieving what they want in their life. Um, and, and I want to play a very, very, very small part in that. But unless we talk about it, unless we have awkward conversations, we don't make the world a better place. But so back to your allyship question, that's where you do have so much more power than I do because you're in the decision-making rooms and conversations with people who might make off-the-cuff comments or um, have views that aren't with the times. Um, yeah. But it's your role and responsibility to have those conversations because it's easier for you to and you will be listened in a way that yeah. I won't because... I walk into a room and start talking about race and gender equality and I get eye rolls and, well, here she goes again. That's She's a young yeah. brown person and that's all she's going to know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, like I said to you earlier, I was self-conscious about the fact that the, you know, we, we raised this when we when we have the woman in the hijab who comes along and sits on it, but we weren't we weren't talking about race with the with the two white women that we had, even though it was an environment where it was absolutely right that we should be talking about racial justice and fairness of opportunity for everybody. But what you get then is you then duck out of the conversation of having any conversation because you start to second guess, well, actually, should I be talking about this? And you say, actually, I'm not going to talk about this just in case I offend, you know, this group in the audience. And then what you do is you achieve nothing because you don't have that conversation. And we talk about this council culture as well, don't we? I mean, we talk a lot about the Daily Mail because, you know, full disclosure, I worked there for 18 months, even though he, Michael thinks I was the editor. And Michael thinks I'm still a fully paid up member of the Daily Mail. But I hate this, 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 this vocal audience, you know, that, that everything, everybody says something and it becomes a them and us situation. Politics are moving that way as well. I mean... If you, I mean, what can I ask a question as well? What did you think when Rishi Sunak became the Prime Minister? What, did, what was your view then? Very mixed. Mm. Um, so on one hand, I wanted to be the first Asian Prime Minister. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, seriously, it was, it's, um, I think there's, there was a moment of pride where I was like, wow, it's actually happened. I, I never genuinely thought I'd see a person of colour be Prime Minister in, in this Britain. And then I was like, but he does not represent me, he does not represent anyone I know, and actually the colour of his skin is a byproduct of actually what he represents. And that was really disheartening that you can, you have this leader who you should feel aspirational to, you should feel some sort of connection, but you just don't. Yeah. And it was really disappointing. He's no Barack Obama, is he? No. Yeah. no. Well, you did tweet, you did say, you did say, you can still be the first female yeah. Asian <laughs> prime minister as well. Yeah, let's hope so. So come on, t t tell me then, Vimla, what's your, uh, what's your trajectory for getting into politics and changing the world? Can I ask, because you mentioned your age, so that's the reason I'm asking. Do you say you're 30 now? Okay, so you look at a lot of the politicians. We spoke about it in last week's podcast. Um, um, Devenna Davison is, and now she's leaving. She's 29. Mm -hmm. William Ragg famously beat Michael at the 2015 general election. He's announced he's leaving. He's 34. Um, you're finding politicians are actually younger politicians are quitting politics even before you're considering becoming a politician as well. So, yeah, that's an interesting question in terms of you're 30 now you've got a young daughter, you know, there's a general election happening in two years. Um, 
the selection process is really interesting. You know, when should I put my money on you being PM? <laughs> Not for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, it is a long game. And I don't think it's going like, to... I don't see myself getting into politics anytime soon because of how long it actually takes to establish a political career. I think that's one of the barriers is... And, and it shouldn't be quick. You, should, you need to be able to understand the lay of the land and how it all works in order to get there. Um, but I think it's... it's difficult to know how to start and that's part of the problem is there's it's not an easy road into politics and there are so many different ways of getting into politics you can be a councillor you can be an MP you could work in policy um and that that it's trying to figure out which of those has the most influence and that's what I'm interested in is how I don't I'm not interested in being the face of something but not having influence I want to do something where there's impact and change rather than um being the spokesperson for a new policy. Mm. I have some ideas. We'll talk about this <laughs> off air. Yes, very good. I think you've got an agent. Um, <laughs> yes, I was making notes there. Yeah. Um, well, that's that's amazing. So finally, just to, to wrap things up, Vim, like what, um, what do you think of the Northern Powerhouse and levelling up? And where, where do you think we're up with there? With all of that, from uh, your, your position here in the in the business world in the north of England mm. and everything you're involved in, it's a really good question because I think there's been there's been a lot of talking about the Northern Powerhouse and levelling up for a really long time. And with the change of government and change of leadership style that we've had, there's been a lot of, since it was announced that it was all going to happen, I think it's just gone down of down the priority list of things that need to be focused on. And I think that's a shame because the power of the North is massive, and particularly if the North works together, um, there's so much strength there. I think the opportunity is now to really influence that with devolution and everything that's happening um, to bring the business community together to build those connections better. Um, but we face the battles of transport, of uh, connectivity, um, and quite frankly, taking on the uh, amount of airtime that London gets. And with the economic instability and political instability, I don't think it's going to get that prioritisation anytime soon either. Mm. Fantastic. Well, we 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 think the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're we're on the same side on that one, and and I, and I think we're all the richer for having uh, voices like yours taking part in this debate as well. And I do Thank you. encourage you to do so. So that's all for this week's bonus episode of Northern Spin Extra. Just a reminder that we're on Apple Podcasts, so please give us a five star review and write us a fulsome tribute if you can. We're on Spotify as well. Uh, don't forget to give us a follower on a follow on Twitter at northern underscore spin one. Thank you to What Media for recording this podcast. Thank you to Oscar Technology for being our sponsor. And thank you to Elliot Taylor for providing the music. My name is Michael Taylor. And as always, my name is still Chris McGuire. Thank you. <laughs>